it's one thing to get a job, get a foot in the door, get to know people in the industry. It's another thing to be someone people want to work with. My guest today, Jonathan Fermansky, really highlights how important it is to be someone people want to work with again. There's a lot of people for every single opportunity in the industry. One of the things that's going to make you stand out is whether or not people want to spend weeks and weeks and months and months and long days, tough days on set with you. Are you an easy person to get along with? Are you fun to work with? Jonathan has been shooting Search Party pretty much every season. And Search Party, if you haven't been watching it, you should. It's a lot of fun. It's hugely successful. And one of the cool things about how he talks about it is he describes it as summer camp, which I think if you have that attitude, no matter how hard something is, people will want to approach you and approach the project with you. Jonathan has done all kinds of projects. He's leaned a lot into comedy, but he's also done a lot of doc style stuff, including ESPN 30 for 30s about some legendary sports figures of the 1980s, which was particularly fun to talk about for me. He's worked with comics like Amy Schumer. He's worked for Oprah a number of times on some of her big projects. So his perspective is really interesting and how he's kind of winded his career around is worth listening to. So check it out. I want to start by asking you just about having shot now every, have you shot every season of Search Party? I've worked on every season. I've shot every episode except two. Um, And in season three, I was shooting Good Boys in Vancouver when prep started on season three. And I was supposed to finish Good Boys with three or four weeks in between. Um, so I'd be able to go to New York and start prepping there. And, you know, every time I should have learned this lesson years ago, but every time you think something's going to line up perfectly, of course it does not. And good boys <laughs> pushed, I think three weeks. Um, and that just made it impossible for, for me to prep. And so we all agreed that for the good of the show, for the good of search party, have somebody else come in and do the first two episodes of season three. So, uh, Kat Westergaard came in and, and filled in and did a great job. Um, so unfortunately, I wish I could say I'd done the whole thing, but I missed those two. It's crazy though that you've done as much as you have because it's you know it's a long it's been run, it's a, got four seasons of television so far, and usually a show will have many people who kind of come in and out and and shoot. But you are like almost all but two the lone uh, lenser. So I'm kind of curious what that just right off the bat. What is that experience like? being so tied to and so you know you, you go through many different directors obviously and there's a lot of different writers on a series but you're kind of a consistency well i mean honestly it's great you know because as you say on a lot of shows um there's at least a, a couple dps who might alternate or you know people come and go from season to season and i really like that i've been a part of this uh you know summer camp family <laughs> or whatever the best way to describe it is, and be a part of telling the story for, for four or five years. You know, the, the show is so unique in a lot of ways, and the writing is so is so great, and the actors are phenomenal. And we've had a lot of the same people in the crew the entire time as well. 
I mean, it's hard to keep people, you know, for four or five years uh, coming back because we're not like, you know, Search Party is a pretty small show uh, when all is said and done. And we only shoot for about 40 days. So it's not like people can like build their year around Search Party. Right. So unfortunately, we, we haven't been able to keep everybody around, but we've been able to keep a lot of really great people. Um, and, and that's been one of the most enjoyable parts of the whole process is that it really does kind of feel like, I was kind of joking when I said summer camp before, but it does feel like, oh, we're going back to summer camp. You know, we're going to make search party again. So, you know, there aren't a lot of jobs that give that feeling. So I'm, I'm happy for it in, in this case. It's also funny you say summer camp because one of the things I think of when I think of Michael Showalter, who's one of the creators and the showrunners, is summer camp. Right. Because of Wet Hot American Summer. Sure. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, there's a lot of comedy greats involved in this. He's mm-hmm. one of them. What uh, and you've you've shot with a bunch of directors who are you know known for great comedy work. Mm-hmm. Um, what if what can you tell me about like shooting comedy, scripted comedy, as an experience versus other things you've shot? Do you approach it the same way, differently? How would it be different? Any scripted project is going to be different than a documentary, you know. And I've been fortunate that I've been able to do kind of at least for the last maybe eight years, kind of an equal amount of documentary work and scripted work and. The majority of the scripted work has been comedy, uh, which are strange bedfellows, but in, in some weird ways, they kind of reinforce each other. Um, but I think, you know, what what I constantly hear and I'm constantly reminding myself when we're working on a comedy show, whether that's Good Boys or Search Party, is that the photography just can't get in the way of the funny. You know, that's the most important thing, because um, without the jokes, you know, there's there's nothing there. And you know, for Search Party specifically, because Search Party also has one foot in drama, you know, there's a lot of dark stuff that happens on Search Party. Um, it gives us a little bit more latitude to be visually more expressive and, and, and take a few risks and be a little bit more interesting than I think what traditionally people think of as comedy photography. And, and this is not like unique to Search Party, I think, too. I mean, shows like Atlanta also do a great job of having a strong visual style, but not really undermining the comedy at all. In fact, reinforcing it. And it's a, it's, it's a nice development that I think has happened over the last maybe 10 years where, you know, in the nineties, if you were doing a television comedy, there was, there were, there were some rules that you kind of followed. They weren't really like written down. There's these unspoken guidelines of like, you know, be wide and be bright and, you know, don't yeah, move the camera too key. much. Yeah. yeah I exactly. remember from school, like all the kinds of, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, if you, and you go further back than that, then comedy on television is like all kind of exactly one way. Like yeah, <laughs> there were yeah, even like sure. single camera things. That, but people have compared this show uh, to Arrested Development tonally, mm-hmm. but also I would say visually it's, it's even farther. I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff, more cinematic. That seems like part of what you're saying is more and more you, you see that happening in television or in comedy. And it's still important to stay out of the way of what's happening. Because traditionally, the idea of like the high key kind of well-lit and wide comedy was like, let's just not interfere with the joke, right? Right, right. So how do you do that when you're also trying to be cinematic? Well, I think in, in the case of Search Party, you know, to a large extent, it's picking our battles so that if we have something... If we have a scene where all four of like the main characters are are in a room together, we might be a little bit less precious about putting marks down. We might just say like, "Hey, you guys can kind of we'll we'll light the room, 
and you guys can go around and you can do whatever you want. I mean, they basically, you know, nobody really does that, but, you know, we just give them the freedom to, you hmm. know, kind of do what, do whatever kind of like feels right, you know, cause we get, we have a lot of great comedic actors on the show, you know, um, and we want to give them the ability to just, you know, go for it. So then when we're not doing things like that, or if there's a moment in a scene like that, that feel like we can target a little bit more, then we try and get into some of the more interesting, expressionistic, maybe weird photography. Like in season two, when they were dealing with the fallout of Keith's murder, no spoilers, sorry for anybody who hasn't seen the show yet, <laughs> Dory was uh, having these psychotic episodes. The character of Dory was having these psychotic episodes because she hadn't really wrapped her head around, you know, what had happened and the guilt and everything. And so we used those moments to try and do something different and try and do something where we pushed it into a, you know, uh, a, just, a, just a different visual environment um, from the previous scenes where they're sitting around a table having brunch and, and just chatting. Right. And still kind of staying in a space where you can have psychotic episodes, but be funny. Like visually, yeah. <laughs> like, it sounds really complicated. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't, I'm sure you keep your mind to some extent out of the process. Like you don't overthink it, but when you, when you put it that way, it does feel like, how do you manage that? How do you thread that needle? It is a bit of a balancing act, you know, to a large extent. And I think, you know, Charles and Sir, Charles Rogers and Sir Violet Bliss, who are the creators with M Michael Showalter and kind of the head writers and the showrunners, and they direct most of the episodes. They really keep the, sh the ship, you know, on course. Um, they give me a lot of room to do weird and, and wild things, you know, or at least weird and wild within the, you know, the, the confines of search party. Um, but they will be the people who kind of say like, well, this scene is a, needs to be a little bit more about this. And this needs to be a little bit more about that. And sometimes it does kind of blend like again, in season two, you know, Dory goes to, or actually the, all the friends go to see, Meredith Portia in the Charles Manson play and the Charles Manson play is just like kind of over the top thing with blood spraying everywhere and all that. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's meant to be ridiculous and funny, but she is having this moment where she flashes back to these, you know, these, the murders and, and things like that. And, you know, we, we do try and kind of like get, I guess it's having our cake and eating it too. You know, we get to shoot the, the, the Charles Manson play, which is again, ridiculous. <laughs> um, but then we also have Dory having this real moment, you know, where she's, you know, she, she feels like her, you know, her, she's losing her mind. I feel like you've done the gamut because you've done stuff like that, but then, and, and you've been doing search party recently, but you have a really long resume that includes a bunch of different kinds of stuff, like 30 for 30 docs, a bunch of things with Oprah, um, a lot of other comedy, including other comedy series, series that combine stand-up live performances with sketch stuff. So is is it like becoming part of your second nature almost to be shifting gears as you go like well, that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't really, I guess I don't, I haven't really thought about it that way. Um, but I do know that, I mean, when I do think about kind of the directions that my career has taken, I do consider myself extremely fortunate um, in that I, I have a just a greater amount of variety in the work I've been able to do. And again, when I think about it, it it's, it's odd because 
like I didn't go into this business with the idea that I wanted to work on documentary projects. Mm -hmm. And I found that I kind of fell into it, not accidentally, but it was just, you know, opportunities presented themselves. And then I started doing documentaries and I loved it. And I still love working on documentaries. And then through the documentary, strangely, I got an offer to do a scripted comedy show because they wanted that show to look like a documentary. And I had never pursued scripted comedy before, but then next thing you know, I'm doing that. And, you know, it all kind of like one thing leading to the, to the other, but it's not like, I, I, I guess it, you know, it, it feels a little, maybe eclectic is the polite way to put it. You know, if you look at the, the things that I've been able to work on, but I think that that's great because every project feels a little bit different. You know, I get to work on something where I have a crew of a hundred people and we're, you know, trucks of gear and we get to really create and think about like, oh, how, are we, how what's the best way to represent this, you know, using the camera and lighting, et cetera. And then I go to something else where it's like, okay, there's four of us, we're in a minivan, we're going to throw the camera on my shoulder and just go off and, and shoot people in some part of the world doing something. And it, it, it's just great to be able to bounce between those things, even though it might feel a little schizophrenic. At the same time, you know, it's, it, you get to take the lessons learned from one and apply them to the other. Um, and it works, it's bi-directional. So it, as I said, I, I feel fortunate, but I think it's also really rewarding to be, to be able to do that because you do get to take advantage of like, oh, you know, I've learned some things. I've learned some tricks. I've learned some ideas working on docs that I can take and apply to the narrative work and vice versa. And, uh, and it, I think it just makes it a little bit more fun and interesting, at least for me, you know, on, when, when I'm there. Yeah. Was it delocated? Was that the, the project that kind of signified the, the crossover for you? That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And was it sort of like going, you went into it like, oh, okay, this incorporates everything I've done, but it's for, it's to a different end. It's for a comedian, for a comedic end. Kind of, you know, when I first interviewed for Delocated, they told me they were like, we don't want to, we don't even want to rent any light. You know, we just want, we really want to shoot this light. I mean, they were thinking reality show, but you know, with a little bit more thought behind it. So we would talk about it in documentary terms. Um, cause Delocated is supposed to be a fake reality show. Right. Uh, as we kind of like we're moving forward, you know, we realize that, it's, you know, well, this isn't really going to work. You know, we're we're just going to be in situations where we need to have more reliable, you know, lighting and, and things like that. We weren't even thinking, frankly, in terms of uh, in terms of being expressive. We were just thinking like, oh, just a minimum of exposure, you know, to be able to like work. Um, and then, you know, as the seasons went on with that show, you know, we got more ambitious and we started to do things that were really you know, a lot more fun and, 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 and had a, a little bit more thought, but you know, the idea going into that initially, at least when the way we started was like, you know, this is like, and I was even telling the producers, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't even watch the rehearsal. Like if we want to <laughs> really be a documentary, like I should just come in and be like, oh, and then, and then that idea went away very quickly. Because... <laughs> you said that sounds like a great idea. That's why I'm not one of the producers of these shows. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, that, and that ended up being the kind of thing that like that strongly undermined the comedy because like, I didn't know who was going to say the next funny line. So right. that, didn't, yeah. that didn't work at all. That um, reminds but... me of something I've been told before, which is like the preparation makes you makes it possible for you to be spontaneous right so like knowing exactly what they're going to do makes it easier for you to react when they change it up right i think so and i think that that also comes from 
the, I mean, I think that, you know, all experience is good experience, um, whether you're learning what you want to do or what you don't want to do. But coming from documentaries where you do have to be very nimble and improvisational and you have to have your, you know, your left eye open and your ears open and, and, and thinking about like, well, if this person comes in the room, what am I going to do about that? Um, you take that and then all of a sudden, like you're in a situation and you, the blocking isn't what you want it to be, or the sun isn't where you want it to be, or, or you lose the location and you have to go, you know, punt and really kind of figure it out on the fly. It gives you a base of knowledge that makes you feel a little bit more confident in your decisions. And to be honest, you know, even now, um, I mean, many years after Delocated on a show like Search Party or even Good Boys, um, or other things of that size where it's, you know, you're not turning on a dime. Mm. I do sometimes like to come in and not have a plan, which is not to say that I haven't thought about it and I haven't thought like, well, lights through the windows or, you know, steady cam or, or, or whatever kind of like the bigger ideas for covering the scene are as much as it's just like, I kind of want to see what the actors are going to do. And I kind of yeah. want to see, like, I want to hear, and I just want to listen and I just want to kind of observe and absorb it. Um, and then maybe we can tackle how we're going to do it. That doesn't work for every scene, of course. You know, if you need lights on a lift or you're, you're putting stuff on a rooftop across the street, you can't do that willy nilly. Um, but for other things, you know, sometimes it's fun to just be like, well, let's just discover it all together and let's see what the actors want to do. And we'll just kind of, figure it out from there. Yeah. And so, and on Delocated, mm -hmm. you worked with John Glazer. So that was probably, was that the first time you guys worked together? Because then it, I know on a couple other projects, at least on Inside Amy Schumer, was that the beginning sort of a, of a collaboration of sorts with you guys? Oh, for sure. And it wasn't just John and Amy, because Amy was on Delocated also. That's how right. Amy and I met. And that's how I got Amy's show. But also the people at PFR, like John Lee, um, who has directed a few episodes of Search Party, and and we, he and I have done you know a dozen other projects over the last ten years. So, Delocated did become quite a springboard for me for you know friends and connections and you know leading to other work and and things like that. And you know for a show, a Delocated was not. You know, it, it, it wasn't friends. It was never like that level of popular, but the people who like it love it. And I still get people who talk to me about it and they're just like, Oh my God, that show, you know, it just, it, it, there, there was something about it. Like, I don't know what it was, but you know, John Glazer's sense of humor and everything. And I don't know. It just, it just people really hold on to it. Yeah. He, he, John, his sense of humor has a unique place sort of in the, it's like in the background of a lot of things that end up informing a lot of other things. I don't know how else to put it, but it's like snakes through sort of what the what the humor is of the time, you know, going back to Conan. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting, though. I, I want to follow up on that with a question like you say it was a springboard and, and, it, and it kind of became a breeding ground for a lot of relationships that would influence the next choices or projects you would do. Do you have any insight into how or why a single project becomes something like that within a career? Or is it something about how you approach the work or about the, the, the way you collaborate that, that makes that sort of thing possible? I'm sure that is part of it. I think the biggest thing is, and this is something that I, I think I'm still like reminding myself or, or relearning as, as the years go on um, every year, is that you know, you can have the greatest reel in the world, but you know, you're really you're like more often than not, your next job comes from the people you're working with right now, hmm. you know, because they're like, oh, you're, 
you're good to be around. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, making a TV show or a movie um, or a documentary, it's, it's hard work. And yeah. you're in tight quarters in stressful situations um, with people, you know, where long hours, people start to sweat and smell and you know, they get messy <laughs> and <laughs> you don't get to use the bathroom as much as you want and you're not eating um, as well as you want to. And if you want to, if you're going to sign on for something where it's like, okay, this is the next three, six, nine months of my life, you know, however long it is, you want it to be with those people who you're like, oh, I'm glad to be in this situation, you know, with, with these people. It's like the foxhole idea, yeah. you know, like you want these people in your foxhole. That's such a positive upside version of the other version that I'm accustomed to thinking about or hearing, which is sort of like the, the quote, the devil, you know, or oh. just like, <laughs> you know, but it's like, you're saying, make it a positive thing. Like, do you want to be around these people? And sort of like, if you know that uh, you're going to have a job coming up, what's the quickest, dis the shortest distance between point A and point B might be the person you're working with now who you like, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, people develop a shorthand. Um, and there's incredible value to that because not only do you get to work efficiently, um, but it gives you room to have new ideas because you've been down these roads with these people before. Um, and you can say like, okay, remember last time we did this? So maybe we do something different or whatever. And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, and it's just, everything is a little bit easier, not in the sense that like it's easy work, it's always difficult. Um, but it's easier just to kind of like get to that next idea or that 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 just better version of the same idea than it would be if you're kind of like starting over with people where you just say like, well, let's just do this, you know, and let's see how it goes, like all of that kind of thing. You know, it, I just think it gives you the opportunity to just be better. No, I mean, that makes sense. And I, you know, thinking about your own career, it seems like there's other instances beyond just that show. You know, you did a lot with Oprah. Can you tell me about that sort of as it's, it's kind of completely different from, you know, John Glazer and comedy and Amy Schumer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a little misleading um, because of all of the jobs that I did for Oprah or for the Oprah Winfrey network, I think I've been in a room with her maybe three times. Um, right. And she's kind of a big, <laughs> she oversees a lot, right? There's oh a lot yeah. No, she's got, she's got a lot going on and she like, she deserves every ounce of success because every time I've been in a room with her, which again is not very much, she is incredibly impressive. Um, very astute, very aware, you know, just like I, you know, just very impressive. And, um, you know, but th those projects were by and large, I mean, there were a few different ones, but by and large, there were these shows where we would do, um, an interview with a celebrity and celebrity could be like an actor or also could be a politician or a, you know, a sports person or, or whoever. And these kind of very intimate interviews where they would talk about lessons they've learned throughout their lives. And it was a way to kind of tell their story and, and, and see some of the things that they've done, but also then maybe take away from it some life lessons that are more universal and that people can apply to whatever's going on with them. Um, and it was called Oprah's Masterclass. Yeah, that was that was the main show. There are a few other shows that kind of like were in the same uh, genre environment, I guess you'd say. These predated, of course, doing these predated the idea of the masterclass we have now, which is, you know, some a celebrity or a person who excels at something teaching an online course. But this idea of of kind of going into this 
special genius of an individual, right? Mm-hmm. And their life experience. Yeah, it, it had less to do with technique and had more to do with like theory or hmm. philosophy. And which is, I kind of, I think why I was saying like the, the, the lessons would be, we try to present them in a way that uh, people can take whatever they want from it and however it kind of, whatever that means for their lives, they can do it or, or they can use that. And so it was a little bit less like when you see the Ron Howard masterclass that you were talking about and you talk right. about, well, here's how I approach filmmaking. It's like, oh, that's great. That's super interesting. But it is a little bit less of a universal message than what the Oprah masterclass was, which is more about like, you know, I had this thing happen to me when I was 17 and it impacted the rest of my life for whatever reason, you know, and, and, and then you go like, oh, wow, you know, I've had situations like that too. And, you know, this is how I dealt with it, which, you know, maybe in hindsight wasn't a good idea. Um, but <laughs> you know, so it, it was, it was more like things like that, you know, which, which it, just to say, it's, it's just a different approach. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me, especially because, you know, I host a podcast where I talk to people about their life experiences and kind of what defines their careers, but, and tries to help our audience learn from them. So it's getting a little meta, but I'm thinking like what, you know, you did a bunch of these, you're sitting there shooting them, uh, looking at them. And what did you get out of say, like, you know, Tom Brokaw and Shaquille O'Neal, like on opposite ends of, of a kind of personality and careers type of career spectrum or field that like, was there things you found in all these that, that you thought, Oh, that's like a weird connection between them. Or were they also varied? They were a little bit different. I mean, the thing I remember the most about the Shaquille O'Neal interview is that, you know, traditionally we would do these interviews in a large stage environment because <laughs> we needed hard to fit him in the frame or something. <laughs> well, he, so, you know, we needed like the way that we built this was like, you know, we've tried to create this cocoon around the person and the camera. And then we did the, the Interatron setup, which for people who are listening, don't know what that is. That was where you put like a teleprompter in front of the lens, but instead of words, you put in a video camera and um, the interviewer is behind another video camera so they're basically like the teleprompter shows that person's face so they're basically looking at each other through the camera which i think errol morris pioneered i don't know if he invented it but he definitely with his interatron setup you know he, he he made it a thing um and so we needed room to do that you know you need like you know 80 feet by 80 feet or whatever it is and for shaquille o'neal for some reason we were shooting i think in miami it was either miami or atlanta and we couldn't find a space, so we had to shoot it in a hotel room. So we had to create this monstrous setup in like a regular old hotel room. And then Shaquille O'Neal, who was, I don't know, was 6'10", 7 feet tall, like whatever. Then he came in, and it just felt like the entire time I was just thinking, like, I can't believe how small this is. I can't <laughs> believe that Shaquille O'Neal is 6 feet away from me, and I can barely fit him in the frame, not because, you know, he's so tall, but because, I mean, he is tall, but because you know, the entire room is only like 15 feet square. Um, but, you know, so that that was the, my big takeaway from that. He was also, I think the other thing that surprised me, just to get out of the technical for a second, was he had a great sense of humor. Um, and so as much as I enjoyed kind of like listening to his insights, I really enjoyed more just his kind of more playful attitude, um, which is unusual for a show like that and for a, a setup like that. I think people... People try to be thoughtful. They try and be, 
serious and you know i think they probably just come in with that idea and usually we're end up talking about serious things right yeah maybe in the context of those interviews he was one of the only ones who even if there are some playful people in there they didn't approach it that way yeah i think people there's an expectation that it would be like i'm saying for from the interviewee's perspective you're walking in and you're surrounded by all this stuff and then there's a camera with somebody's face sure you know kind of stamped on the front of it and you think okay well here we go. You know, this is, we're going we're to talk about some deep stuff here. Um, but Shaquille O'Neal was, was, like I said, just a little bit more, had a little more playful attitude about it. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in L.A. by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in L.A., You'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Since we're on the topic now of of sports and documentary because that is just another way in which your career has differed or, or varies. You did two 30 for thirties about really legendary 1980s athletes yeah. who had sort of legendary falls. And I, I, you know, I'm a fan of the 30 for 30 series in general, but these are both ones that stick out to me because there's a lot, um, there's a lot to them. There's a lot more to them. There's a lot of humanity in them. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about Doc and Daryl and You Don't Know Bo? And for those who don't know, uh, just quick context, Doc and Daryl were two young, massive megastars in the New York sports area in the 1980s. And Bo Jackson was a huge nationwide phenom in two sports in the 1980s. And all three figures had, you know, major struggles, that, uh, obstacles that confronted them, demons, etc. You Don't Know Bo was was a really fun experience, but in a lot of ways it was odd. And it was odd, um, not really from a photographic standpoint, but just, you know, Bo's story was something that I had not really, I had not been exposed to a story like that before. I mean, he can, you know, he's one, he came from nothing. He had an amazing career as an athlete and then he injured himself out, you know, essentially. What I didn't realize was that he was just, like people talk about people being naturally gifted all the time. And I don't know that that many people are really naturally gifted as much as they work really hard. Mm. But Bo Jackson is naturally gifted. I mean, he is just unbelievably like, I mean, a lot of the things that we talked about were the fact that like he never practiced or he <laughs> hated practicing and he just wanted to play. And he just <laughs> had this kind of, you know, understanding and, and physical prowess. And, and uh, he had all of the pieces. And so he didn't need any other help. Which is not to say that he wasn't a team player. He was very much a team player, but he just didn't need, he didn't need the 10,000 hours like everybody else. Right. So that was really interesting. The, the other thing that I remember the most from Bo's project was, I remember Mike Bonfiglio was the director of that and he came up to me. We were talking about like, oh, when are we going to interview Bo? We've been talking to all his coaches and, you know, people who knew him. And Mike said, you know, we're, we're having a hard time getting Bo involved. You know, we, we called him. We said, we want to do a documentary about him. And, and he said, why? And he, 
<laughs> he didn't seem to think there was any big deal, which was another kind of like there's there's a I guess the polite way to think about it is like he's just really, really humble person. Yeah. Um, and I think he really doesn't. I mean, he's doesn't he's he's self-aware enough to know that, like, you know, the guy who wins the Heisman Trophy, that like that's not nothing. Right. But I think he also was just kind of like, well, you know, I was just doing what it was fun and I was good at it. And that's why. And, you know, so what's the story? Um, but then if I found out um, after it was done, they sent him a copy. He showed he watched it with his wife and apparently, you know, he was really happy with it, and he's really glad that he did it. I think also because now one of the reasons he said yes is he said, well, I want to be able to show my kids something that really represents what my career was. Yeah, and that kind of that suited the bill because they probably don't know Bo. <laughs> they, yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of those things where like if you if you talk about it, and this is something that the some of the other athletes and uh, sports presenters and people that we interviewed for the movie uh, talked about was that it's one thing to talk about all the great things that he did, or to be or you look at one highlight reel, you know, where you see it, but when you see it all together. It's like, wow, it's like um, this, this guy was a once in a generation talent. And and unfortunately, as I said before, he got he kind of injured out and he was, you know, the tragedy, I guess, tragedy in quotes. But, you know, that he never won a championship on any of the teams that he was on or at least any of the pro teams. I don't, can't remember. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lot left in the context of how of long sports careers, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, it's not tragic in the way that turning to Doc and Daryl, what you did next, the other 33rd you did is right. has is a real tragedy, tragedy in it. on a different scale. Yeah, they are both in it. And, and I even think there was some fallout over one of them still struggling or claiming the other struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. What was that one like compared to the others and your other Doc experiences? I mean, that was very different. It was that one was a lot of fun because, well, I guess it, there's two sides to every coin. You know, we found this warehouse in Brooklyn to do the interviews and we decided, oh, you know, it's a really cool space and we're going to get all these lights. So we're going to try and give it like something of like, a, um, you know, the lights at a, at a sports stadium, kind of a, kind of a vibe. And we got these funky filters to make it look weird. And, you know, so we were, we were having a lot of fun with it. What we didn't realize was that there's absolutely no soundproofing in that space. <laughs> and the the warehouse was right along Flushing Avenue in Brooklyn, which, if you don't know, is a major, major artery and yeah. mostly for trucks, mostly <laughs> for big old trucks delivering a lot of stuff, bouncing around and making a lot of noise. And so our interviews got, you know, interrupted regularly, like every 10 or 15 minutes, we would have to stop because the truck had parked out front and was doing whatever they were doing. Um, so that was a little frustrating and, it, you know, just extended everything a little bit. But thankfully, Doc and Daryl were both so used to being on camera and being the subject of an interview that I don't think it really disrupted them too much. So it was it was fun from that respect that we got to kind of like build this little world that was specific just to us. But then as far as the story went, you know, so for people who don't know, you know, they both played for the Mets, at least initially they were both playing for the Mets. Doc was a pitcher. Daryl is an outfielder and a hitter, um, like a slugger. He's really good. They're both great. They're, you know, and they were part of the 86 Mets team that won the World Series. So it was really great. And then they both got into big trouble with drugs and alcohol and, and just getting into a lot of trouble. And, you know, Daryl kind of moved on to other teams. Doc kind of like fell off the radar a little bit. 
and now what we've made that movie in what 2014 or something like that daryl is kind of like has recovered he's a bit of a celebrity he gets to go make appearances and you know and sign autographs and he's having a great time and doc was still struggling at least at that time he was still struggling with addiction yeah and so that was a big part of you know, not just the story of them historically, but the story of them now and kind of like showing how two young men who were kind of in the same situation as in their early 20s, um, playing for the same team, playing professional sports, getting into trouble, you know, how divergent the paths can be coming out of that, you know, add 20 years and, and then, or 30 years really, um, and then see where, where they kind of like land, which for me became like kind of like the bigger more interesting part of it is just seeing how how divergent those those two paths were what sticks out in my mind from it from a filmmaking perspective and and probably from a cinematographer's perspective and documentary style is there's scenes where they like kind of come to terms with some stuff together mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's 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 almost a little awkward but it's a little weird to watch as they sort of wrestle with what's happening now between them where they are as well as what happened in the past because i think yeah. there's if memory serves, they're talking about some incidents that they want to put in the past, but in the present, there's clearly something else. There's another layer. And I just think it must be unique. It's a unique experience to photograph that, be in the moment, you know, and capture it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about documentaries in general is that you get to be a witness uh, to things that typically you wouldn't have exposure to and you get to go to places and meet people that at least I typically wouldn't have exposure to. And for those scenes specifically with Doc and Daryl kind of working out their, their history, um, if you, if we want to put it that way, you could kind of tell that they had had these conversations before over the year, you know, cause it's an ongoing struggle for both of them. I mean, Daryl, yeah. like I said, he's recovered, but you know, people who know about addiction, you're like, you're, you know, it's, it's a lifelong struggle. Yeah. And, you know, so it was kind of, it was interesting to be a fly on the wall for, you know, I mean, I'm guessing a little bit for, but what was probably like the, you know, the eighth or 10th time they've had this conversation trying to like talk about some of these things. And as you say, like put some of the historical issues to bed. I don't want to misrepresent their story. So I don't want to go too much into the details of it you know i I think the 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 movie does a really good job of it but i will i'll just reiterate that i'm you know it's just one of the great i don't want to even say side effects because it's a main part of the the process but it's one of the great benefits of working on documentary projects is you do get to have kind of a front row seat to things like this where people are um either working on personal problems or or dealing with things on a on a global scale or 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 whatever you know it's just it's just a, a a, a wonderful aspect of the job. Bringing that back, that idea to, you know, things like search party, because we talked about how you sort of react to what's happening, or you initially sometimes have this idea, or you did once of not seeing what they do. Mm-hmm. Does responding to comedy, making room for the comedy have a correlation to kind of making room for people to have their 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 real experience like <laughs> like shooting a real moment but also making sure you stay out of the way of that just like you stay out of the way of the joke or the funny yeah i mean i think you know in documentaries of course the 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 key is uh, what is it the uh, the uncertainty principle in in physics where they talk about how you know the more you look at something the less you know about it yeah and my 
my version of that in terms of documentary filmmaking is that, you know, the more that the, you try and manipulate the situation or get people to do something, the less real it is, you know? Um, and th it sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but, you know, it's surprising how many times you're in situations where, you know, and I think not to shit on reality TV too much, but I think <laughs> reality TV has kind of like brought this, you know, element of manipulation into documentary filmmaking. It's just become a little bit more acceptable to say like, okay, hey, can we do a scene where you do this? Can we do a scene where you go, you know, confront your mom about this problem that you're having, even if it was a conversation they never would have had in real life. Um, yeah. So I get a little, you know, philosophically, I get a little uneasy with things like that. Bringing that kind of attitude towards things like search party, you know, like, oh, so for example, in season four, there's um, a scene where I really don't want to do too many spoilers because season four is still just rolling out. Sure, yeah. But, no, but no. there's a scene where, you know, where Dory is trapped somewhere and she is kind of moving around the space and, and she's, you know, trying to find food and things like that. And I came in to the rehearsal thinking like, oh, yeah, I want to shoot it like this and do this and blah, blah, blah. And then as I was watching the rehearsal and then talking to Alia about it, and Alia is very involved in that show, not just as an actor, but, you know, as a, in terms of story and her character and everything, she's very involved. And she said, I need this to feel like, you know, for, not just for her in the moment, in the, in the room as we were filming, but for the audience at home, she's like, I need this to feel like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pet. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an animal. And I'm like, I'm a, like a little puppy dog. And I went like, oh, you know, because I hadn't thought about that at all, you know, that aspect of it. And so that completely, it, it just made me completely rethink the way we we're going to do it. The how What I had brought into it wasn't going to work at all. Going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about being improvisational, it was definitely that because, you know, we're kind of like, okay, well, then let's figure it out all together. Let's see what we can do. But it was also a reminder, like, not to bring too many preconceptions in and not to try and, like, put my stamp on it in the sense that I'm trying to manipulate the acting or manipulate the storytelling or the, or the, there's no comedy in the scene, but manipulating the comedy or the drama um, in any way, you know, my job is to reinforce it. My job is to, to do just to, to make everything cohesive and, and have the photography reinforce the story and reinforce the comedy and the drama. So I, it, it was, it was a lesson in, you know, not, working to undermine it, I guess, would be yeah, the way to put it. Actually, I don't know, you, you may not realize it, you may, but it, hearing you tell the anecdote, it, it reminds me, there's probably many DPs or filmmakers, not not to say that there's right and wrong to everything, but and or even to this, who would not really want to, even if the performer was an EP, like she's, a, she's an executive producer on the show. She, like yep. you said, she's very creative and involved, but they might not want to hear that or they might not. It might throw them or it might be like, I don't need that. Right. You know, you can see mm -hmm. people sometimes like to divide a little bit in the collaboration and as opposed to being open to it, completely changing how they see it and enriching what they go forth and do. And like I mentioned, and I'm, I'm highlighting this, I think, for listeners or anybody that there's ways in which you can approach projects that make people look to you as like, I want to be in the foxhole with X person again. And I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why you're one of those people. <laughs> because, because if that's how you approach that input, you're like, oh, cool. 
this is actually going to change the way I do it in a good way. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm sure if Alia was here talking to us right now, she would have a different perspective on that. You know, she would probably say that I try and, you know, fence her in a little bit too much. And I, you know, and I, I all of it with love, you know, like we're, we're all like, you know, Alia and I, at least I think I can say this, you know, have tremendous respect for each other. I definitely have tremendous respect for her. I can't, I can't believe some of the stuff that she pulls off uh, from, from a performance perspective. Um, and it just, it blows my mind. And so, and there, there are definitely times when I've told her or other actors or the directors or whoever, I've said, I really need it to be this. But I try in all of those situations not to make it be like, well, I want to do it this way because I think it's going to look the best or because I, you know, this is just my idea and I don't want anyone to be messing with it or anything. <laughs> not not play like the artist, you know, with a capital A. The difficult DP. Yeah, I just, but, you know, I want to say these things and say like, well, there's a reason for it. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, I can't have you going over there because, you know, I don't know, the camera can't see you or whatever. Or if I get you over to the window, then this light is going to hit you this way and it's going to really be like amazing for this moment. It's just going to work perfectly. And I mean, the the sign of any good collaborator is when you tell somebody like that, and Allie is certainly one of these people, she goes, oh, okay, I see that. Let me see if I can make it work and get you that, you know, and it's kind of that, that's kind of like the magic of the collaborative aspects of this industry is that you do get to kind of do these things all together. Cause then, you know, I don't want to be just be like, Hey, Ali, you have to do it this way. You know, I, do, I just don't want to be that guy. I think she would also be like, you know, okay, you can just go jump in a lake. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, like, so who's coming in for season five? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I want her to feel good about it too. And then invariably at, you know, when, when the scene is over, she'll come up to me. She'll be like, how was that? And I'm like, Oh my God, it was so great. The light hit you in this way. And it was amazing. And right when you said that line, and, you know, and it's just, it's exciting. You know, it's, it's just, it, that, that's kind of like the magic that you want to be a part of. One thing we haven't talked about much at all that we should talk about before we finish is just what you shoot on. Like, what do you mm -hmm. shoot search party on? What do you like to shoot on? Because you've shot so many different kinds of things. And how, how do you feel like kind of philosophically about medium has changed so much, you know, in your career, obviously, in the last 15 years in general? You know, how what we shoot on, how we shoot things is in a constantly, rapidly changing situation. Yeah, well, I'll I'll answer the technical stuff first. So Search Party, we shoot on um, Airy, Amira, and Alexa Mini cameras. And it's the Amira because it was, in my opinion, the best digital cinema camera ever made. I bought one sight unseen as soon as they announced it. I called up my sales rep at Able Cinetech and I said, I want the first one you can get me. Um, because I just knew for documentaries, it was going to be, it was going to be a game changer, a functional camera that was ergonomically really well designed, but had, you know, the world class image quality that everyone expects, you know, coming from the Airy family, you know, the same yeah. sensor as the Alexas and et cetera. And then it was easy just to take that and just move it over towards inside Amy Schumer or search party or, or, or whatever. Um, and then we use the, the mini as the B camera because we sometimes take the camera and we strip it down really small. And it's basically just the camera body, a lens, a lens motor, um, a teeny little monitor on top, 
Um, and I just run around with it and I take the camera and I poke it in people's faces and I you know, <laughs> basically get in the way. That's what search party has always been. And you like to operate. I assume you've I been love operating so much, right? Yeah. Tell me no. more about that. We haven't talked about it, but I mean, you have a, a lot of credits as an operator. Oh, uh, sure. Well, operating, I think is the best job on set. You know, I think it's, um, it's creative. You're right there with the actors. You get to hear what everything's ha everything that's happening. You're involved in literally every shot, you know, as, as the operator. And it's, you know, you have creative input, but you don't, you know, you're not going to be like up at three in the morning on a Sunday thinking about like, God, are you, you know, what are we going to do? Um, so it's, <laughs> all the fun, but none of the stress. Or all the fun, but none of the stress. You know, a, an operator's kit, you know, is like a magazine, you know, or whatever book they're reading that day. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, but but again, they're, they're a key part of the process and, you know, they're fully involved and, you know, I, I appreciate them. But I also, whenever I get the opportunity, I love to put the, especially if it's handheld and maybe this is because of all the documentary shooting, but I, I, I just want to put the camera on my shoulder. You know, it feels like it's an extension of who I am. And I love being that intimately involved with something where it's me and it's the actors and we're all kind of like doing this dance together. You know, it's that, that's just kind of like, that's the, the that's the best, you know, that's, that's what I love the most. And then I guess to get to your question about my philosophy about where the industry is going, you know, I remember I did an interview a couple months ago where they asked me if I preferred film or video. And I don't know if they caught me, and maybe video, like we need another term than video. Um, yeah. We're not going to figure it out in this conversation, but it's like video to me means like, you know, it means like the Super Bowl, you know, or something like right. that. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just like, I think what we do with cameras like the Alexa or the Sony Venice or, or what have you, video feels like it's, it's kind of minimizing it, you know, in, in a way. I think we need some digital cinema feels a little too wordy to me. So um, we need a new term. But you know, I was doing this interview and they asked me, you know, film or video. And I said, I said film. And I went on this long rant about how film, oh my God, the texture and the beauty and the blah, blah, blah. And the, the impact that it has on the, on the set, you know, in terms of like how people like what that psychologically means, whether you're rolling film versus whether you're rolling a, a, a digital camera, whatever version of a digital camera it is. And then, you know, a couple days later, I realized that like, as although I, everything, I stand by everything I said in that interview as true, I don't really believe it anymore, <laughs> you know? And what I mean by that is that the digital cinema cameras have gotten really good. And the last few projects I've shot on the Sony Venice um, that weren't Search Party, I shot on the Sony Venice, which is a camera that I love. And it has so many possibilities and it looks great. It's a really well-designed and engineered camera. And I think that what I've come to accept is that the benefits of the digital cinema, you know, workflow outweigh the kind of aesthetic and the personal attachment, Yeah, you know, that, that, that one might have. I, when I first started working in the film business, there was no such thing as HD or, I mean, I guess it was like in its infancy. Yeah. So everything was Super 16, 35, or it was some version of video, like video as we all kind of like know it as video. And that was it. But now there's, you know, umpteen dozen, you know, different formats that you can choose from. But I say, I'll, I say that to say that like I come from film and so I appreciate film and I'm so glad that I learned on film 
but you know, not not to be glib or reductive about it, but you know, carrying forty cans of film through an airport, like I'm not going to miss that. You know, yeah. and it would be one thing if you were horse trading, like okay, there's a ton of convenience, but you're sacrificing quality. But at this point, you know, I don't think you can honestly say that you're really sacrificing quality. I mean, I'm sure you can get really forensic and granular. You can talk about these things. And there are definitely projects that I've seen that people have done in the last three or four years that were shot on film where I've gone like, wow, you know, like you can tell that was shot on film. It looks amazing. But that doesn't mean that the stuff around it that was shot on the digital cinema camera is any less amazing. I mean, 1917, is one of the most photographically jaw-dropping uh, projects I've ever seen. And it was shot on the Alexa, you know? Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't even the Alexa 65 or the LF or whatever. You know, it was just a regular old Alexa. Um, I think, I think, if I have that right. Yeah, we, um, uh, yeah, we, I talked to him, to Deacons, not long, at, around the time of release. And uh, yeah, it was, that was a mind-blowing, beautiful piece of, cinema artistry whatever you want to call it and mm -hmm. i agree with you though also like as a fan as a the beauty of film the experience of the projector the as a filmmaker the experience of not knowing what's happening in that box and you can't right. see and like there's all kinds of things but i think you make a really astute point which is that like uh is it worth all that and you have to weigh it you know and then if you're getting a beautiful image otherwise and you can do something amazing with it do you need to do all that other stuff just because you kind of love the grain these are important questions but yeah i mean uh there's, yeah. there's so many options now yeah and there and there's no right answer i think yeah. is ultimately like what everybody like the the whole film versus video or film versus digital debate is ultimately it's personal and I say like all of the things that I just said about, you know, digital, digital is, is here and, you know, I can't, like, it's only going to get better. And I, I think it, it, it's in a space where the benefits of it outweigh any benefits that, that film has or whatever. I'm not, I'm not phrasing it really that well, but I would love the opportunity to shoot one more project on film. And specifically, I would want to shoot on Super 16 because I think Super 16 is like the great lost format. That was just amazing. And I think I, I, I couldn't say why, you know, it was certainly. I was going to um, say why. <laughs> well, you know, I think if you look back, uh, people probably looked by and large, not everybody, of course, like Darren Aronofsky does great work with Super 16 still to this day. But by and large, people looked at Super 16 as like, OK, that's what people shoot documentaries and low budget movies on. And everything else is 35 commercials and big budget movies and TV shows. It's all 35. And I'm not sure that Super 16 ever got out from underneath that. If somebody came to me with a project where they said, you can shoot any format you want. And it was the kind of thing where I thought like, oh, Super 16 would be perfect for this. Then that would be the one that I would choose. I would choose that over any digital camera. But again, it would just be like, this is, I would, I would approach it as like, here's my last hurrah. And then from now on, I'll just stay in the digital world because as I said, it's just going to get better. And that's the way the industry is going. And, and, and I think it's, it's better to embrace and educate yourself and, and be, be part of the conversation about how it can get better as opposed to just being a Luddite and, you know, saying like, well, it's film or nothing. I guess the flip side of the, that coin, the, the lament I have is, you know, with all of this new digital stuff that's happening and et cetera, you know, there, there's negatives to it too, like downwards pressure on, on, on budgets and things like that. But mostly I kind of like, I'm hypothesizing that with, as film goes away, 
the theatrical experience, I think, is also going away. And certainly the pandemic is not helping that. And I think that is such a key critical part to this whole experience. Seeing something in a theater with a couple hundred people, there's nothing, there's nothing that can replace that. And so I don't know what the future holds for exhibition, except that, you know, we're trending towards smaller and, and more immediate. But I'm hoping that there's some way that the industry can hold on to the theatrical experience and not have it be like a niche thing where, you know, some like Christopher Nolan can do it, but nobody else, but have it be like a really widespread, you know, like everybody on Friday night, let's go on a date, let's go to a movie and then and have, have some drinks afterwards. And, you know, and that's options, not yeah. have it just be, oh, it's only the one thing that's playing, you know? Exactly. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I mean, I think you're right. I don't think that there's a, I think there should be, hopefully will be place for all those things um, to coexist. And for them to be choices artistically, just like I'm going to do this one on watercolor, but I'm going to do this one with some other, you know, medium. Right. But yeah, well, thank you again so much for for coming on. It's been really fun. Um, no, no, it was it was a lot of fun for me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to our interview with Jonathan Fermansky. He was a lot of fun to have on. Be sure to check out Search Party and all of his other work. Also, you can head over to nofilmschool.com and read about all sorts of things going on in the world of filmmaking and entertainment. We have our gear guides, which I've been mentioning a lot lately, but I'm really excited about them. They are an opportunity for all of our readers to dive into what products we recommend and why. Uh, depending on use case, circumstance, types of projects you're working on, types of things you need. So be sure to check it out, nofilmschool.com, and look at our gear guides. And of course, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment, go to iTunes, leave us some stars, let us know why you hate it, love it, any of that stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks.